Welcome to The Good Summer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb. And on this podcast, we talk about consumer innovation and venture capital. Our guest today is Chuck Newhall, who is one of the founders of New Enterprise Associates, or also known as NEA. NEA is one of the largest and most renowned venture capital funds in the world. The companies he's financed have over $400 billion in revenues today. He's also a Vietnam War veteran and earned many combat decorations, including a Purple Heart and is an American hero. Chuck released his latest book, Dare to Disturb the Universe, a memoir on venture capital, which is an amazing story about the history of investing in innovation and really gets to the core about what it is and its role in the economy. Without further ado, here's Chuck. Chuck, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Uh, great, Mike. It's a nice 100-degree day in Baltimore, and uh, you don't want to go outside, so I'm sitting in air conditioning. That sounds exactly like Baltimore or the East Coast, more broadly speaking, in the summertime. As you know, I grew up in the D.C. area, so know that region pretty well, and that sounds status quo for the region. Obviously, thank you. I know you've written also a lot on this too. Thank you so much for your service as well in Vietnam. And also, I mean, you've had this incredible career in venture capital and business. So we're going to be focusing our conversation more on that part of your life. So I want to start out by saying, like, what do you think is the purpose of venture capital and what are its origins? To create companies from scratch that change the way the world is. Do you want an example? Yeah, I would love an example. Well, my partner worked uh, for GE Information Systems, and this was a big computer service company which GE provided to business and consumers service. The fellows at Axel, which we were very close to, the firm that Jim Schwartz and Arthur Patterson founded, found a little company called Unit in Washington, and they thought Peter's background was ideal, so they asked... Uh, NEA to join them in financing UUNet, and Peter really became the lead investor. And there was this guy by the name of Alan, who was a techie who ran it. Good guy. But he didn't know really about how to build a business. The business really only had about a million and a half of revenue. He'd started it, bootstrapped it, and it was losing money hand over fist. And so Peter brought in a management team he, that he recruited out of GE Information Systems, John Sidgmore and two other guys who were highly experienced. And they created a company called UUNet, which at one time had 70% of the traffic over the internet. That company created the internet, both business and consumer. So Peter, before recruiting Sidgmore, knew the strategy of GE Information Systems, and he basically said, what they did on mainframes, we can do over the cloud and over the internet. And that's, in fact, what the company did. But instead of focusing on the uh, consumer market, like uh, many did, he focused on the business market, but also while serving the consumer market. And in the day, the businesses would use it, and the night, the consumers would have access to the pipes, which also could give them instantaneous communication. But in any, any event, UUNet grew. My partner, Dick Kramlick, had started a communications box company in um, high-speed data communications, and they became the most important customer of UUNet and basically provided the proof of concept. So UUNet grew to about 
for three or four billion dollars in a period of four years. Uh, you know, lost money for a good bit of time, like we were talking about, where you're basically in a land grab uh, to grab uh, ISPs, and uh, they acquired a bunch of ISPs, internet service providers from college, uh, from universities. But that market soon became overpriced, so they basically had to start in each region of the country. But then they get a dominant market share. And that's how they became the industry leader. So Peter basically helped the company formulate its strategy. It recruited its management. He talked the CEO founder into becoming chairman and a in wonderful partnership with John Sidgmore, who built the company and um, provided basically you provide you end up providing uh, marital advice to, to the uh, CEOs and key executives of the companies you find, you, you, end yourself, you, you become sort of a father confessor or uh, someone to bounce ideas off of. And you know, you're not always right, but at least you give your opinion. I appreciate you sharing that story. As an investor, when you're analyzing early companies, when does it make sense to, how do you think about you know, changing the leadership and this leadership in general for the company? Well, when we always started a company, I had a partner, Vin Prothro, who died about when he was 50 years old, but he'd helped, helped uh, LJ7 start Mostech. He started at Dallas Semiconductor. He was a Texan, and his family had money in oil and gas and real estate, and he was a little guy, but he was like Lorne Green in Bonanza. You know, you're coming on Prothro country, now behave, and uh, quite a big presence. And he always said when he sat talked with an entrepreneur, and he was one himself, uh, as I was, I helped to start NEA, I was one of three people, think about the management resignation box. And the management resignation box is what happens when you forecast increased revenues and a swing into profitability, and you don't make it, and you get a second try, maybe even a third try, but there comes a time when the CEO becomes a danger to the own the success and viability of his own company. And that's when the board of directors has to step in, hopefully well before that happens, and convince the CEO or, in unfortunate cases, force the CEO to make the change and he leaves the company. By far the best situation is one like one of my partners, uh, David Mott had with Metamune and Dave Hockner, where they worked in tandem together to build Metamune into the billion, billion dollar company. And that's the, I call that venture capital heaven. And uh, so I've had to change out 60 CEOs during my career. My best recommendations came from P CEOs that I had moved out of that top position. But other times, you know, you had to force the change and that was unpleasant because you develop close relationships with these people and it's sort of like having to shoot your friend. Yeah. Which is not happy for either you or the friend. No, for sure. I'd imagine that is a very tough scenario because of course, as investors and, and shareholders, you're looking out for what the best interests are um, for the company to succeed. If the company maybe has has gotten to a place where it makes sense to maybe bring in someone that's more seasoned CEO, I could understand how that could be a very, very tough scenario. Let me tell you one story that uh, is sort of humorous. 
So we'd fact a company called Nutritional Management. It was a healthcare service company, and it was based on the work that a doctor called Jack, George Blackburn did at Harvard. And the morbidly obese people uh, account for a very significant part of healthcare cost because with those comes all the ancillary diseases, which range from cancer to, you know, you, you name it. These are the people that are way, way overweight. And Blackburn had a, pro a way of getting people to do that. And he did it by uh, a very elaborate healthcare uh, service where he'd provide psychological help, exercise, you name it. They'd go into sort of a total life management program, and it worked. Well, we brought in an experienced team, so we thought, including a guy named Pete Fildius, who was in the candidate to run to Baxter Labs and had left Baxter to form a blood bag company that was been very successful. So we thought we had a proven CEO. But what he did is um, he never was able to prove the model. And so he expanded it to four facilities, to 16, uh, eight facilities, to 16 facilities. And he was just losing money hand over fist. And we said, you know, you can't keep expanding it. and You just have to focus on making your facilities you have profitable and get the company to cash flow before you start blowing, out, uh, blowing it out across the nation. And he flipped me the keys and said, okay, you think you're so hot, run it. Now, unfortunately, uh, I'm not a, I know one thing, I'm not a CEO. And I had a, a brought in someone who was to help me. But basically, the model was not duplicable. We never could duplicate the results that uh, George Blackburn had with the morbidly obese across a number of facilities. So eventually, we had to shut the company down. Very sad. You mentioned that you know the one thing that you're not is a CEO. And I'm kind of curious. You, you had been around venture capital from such a young age. Your father was a venture capitalist, worked in aerospace innovation. You obviously, I remember in the book you uh, mentioning that he had a very you know close friendship with Lawrence Rockefeller, who was also a venture capitalist as well. Put it this way, Lawrence Rockefeller yep. started Polaroid, Eastern Airlines, McDonnell Douglas, iTech, Thermo Electron, before Apple and Intel. So uh, Lawrence had an immense impact on the venture capital business. No, for sure, for sure. I'm curious, since you were around this from such a young age, and clearly you were attracted to innovation, right, it seems, but why did you want to go in the financier route, become a venture capitalist, rather than become an entrepreneur? Well, that's a story that will is again, uh, has, is, is sort of funny. So uh, I grew up around venture capital, all right. My father, uh, one of his companies uh, became uh, Thiokol, which basically sent the man to the moon. He built the first rocket engine. So we had people like uh, Chuck Yeager and Edward Teller to be, uh, dinner. And I grew up around entrepreneurs. And my study at college, uh, University of uh, Pennsylvania, if you can believe it, was the romantic hero in 18th and 19th century, uh, late 18th and early 19th century American and British literature. And I fell very seriously and fascinated with people who wanted to change the way the world is, who had this, you know, vision that they put above everything else in their life and fought for it. 
And I guess I am an entrepreneur, and I certainly have uh, helped to be uh, run NEA, uh, but I wouldn't call myself a CEO. So I had decided I wanted to be a writer and a warrior because I was uh, wore a uniform from the age of eight until 23 and was with the 101st Air- Airborne and the Special Forces, and I very much considered becoming a special ops person. Those were the days when you couldn't get above colonel because everybody thought the next war would be with tanks in Europe. They were a bunch of fools. But um, anyway, so I decided not to make the uh, warrior a career, and I became somewhat disillusioned with writing because you had to be a college professor to support yourself. And all I saw with college professors was they argued about how many angels could stand in the head of a pin and get into big fights over what Chaucer was talking about. So I was sort of disillusioned with that, and I was sitting in a Hamburger Hill, which I did the reconnaissance for, and about uh, uh, 60% of my men had been killed or wounded, and we were withdrawing from the hill, and it came upon me because the equipment that was being used to provide us with fire support, the in-flight refueling system that enabled the Navy jet fighters to support land-ground troops, whose a company my father had started, which really changed the way the world was in terms of fighting wars, because now you could get close-in air support anywhere you went. And I said, you know, I'd like to be around those people I was reading about at the University of Pennsylvania. I call them the romantic heroes slash entrepreneurs and I'd like to change the way the world is. And that was my vision. That became my purpose in life, where I was willing to sacrifice anything in pursuit of creating those companies. That's really powerful that it was in Vietnam that actually inspired you and because you saw all the technological advance in the military. It inspired you to, to really think about innovation in that way. If you can believe it, I was shooting with my two hands and thinking about that at the same time. It's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. So why did you decide to eventually start your own partnership? I know this is a few years um, later, but... Why did you eventually decide to start your own partnership? And how did NEA raise your first fund? And how did the partnership come together? Well, that's an interesting story, too. So I was in love by, with venture capital. And uh, I was interviewing at Harvard Business School. And I got turned down by Greylock. Uh, my father was a good friend of George Dorio, who the great venture capital guy who started American Research and Development. I was turned down there. Uh, Dorio said, you know, English majors really shouldn't be venture capitalists. You should have an engineering degree and be a three-star general like me. And I love George Dorio, and he was a role model, but I didn't necessarily follow his advice. So I went to an investment management firm called T. Rowe Price. And T. Rowe Price was a leader in gross stock investing. In other words, They wanted to invest in the company that the entrepreneur had built and was in the process of making into IBM, buy and hold for the long term. And they said, I think it's a good thing for us to get into the venture business, so why don't you put together a plan to do so? So I did that while working for the New Horizons Fund and investing 
in venture-backed companies when the world fall apart in the oil crisis. So I had about a 58% compound annual return on my investments. And uh, T. Rowe Price at the end decided, well, uh, we're having, uh, the, you know, the market's gone to blazes because the uh, oil crisis has occurred. The growth stocks are down. We have to use our money for uh, retiring uh, our senior employees. And besides that, we don't want to give a profits interest, a carried interest, to someone who's managing a division because of all the guys that manage the growth stock fund, the New Horizons fund, and everything else will be wanting a profits interest. And that's the way the venture business is. But really, we think it would upset our whole company. So basically, Tom Barry and Cub Harvey, who Cub Harvey was CEO of the firm and Tom Barry was running the New Horizons Fund, a great guy who went on to run the Rockefeller office, if you can believe it, the whole shebang, said, you ought to start your own venture firm. But you, you know, you're a young analyst, 32 years old, wet behind the ears. And I think you ought to go out and get some partners. So I went out and talked my wife's first cousin, Frank Bonsell, who really created the investment banking business and venture-backed companies for Alex Brown. And they were one of the four horsemen. And he knew everyone in the venture business had done a lot of venture investing while in an investment bank. And we went out and said, Cub said, well, you got to get someone who really knows what he's doing. So we went to uh, AR&D and uh, talked to Jim Morgan, who was one of George Dorio's right-hand men at AR&D. Jim decides to join us. Now, you have to understand, I've now spent every bit of money I've made. I've, I've made about three or $400,000, and I'd put it all into starting the NEA. And Jim Morgan decides to quit the day that we were mailing the prospectus. So we go out and we're beating on doors. And the way you get to get in people to invest is you get people who know you. And fortunately, I had been backing a bunch of successful entrepreneurs. T. Rowe Price put in $1 million, which when retiring all their uh, employees was 17% of the net worth of the firm. A landmark, another friend I knew, Howie Wolf, who ran the Deer family money, put in four and a half. And then we got entrepreneurs like uh, Bob Kreeble of Loctite. I knew the people at 3M very well, and that were a T. Rowe Price client. And, um, and then Dick and Frank each knew people. And somehow we talked people into giving us $16.5 million, which was our first fund. And that's how we started and then we just went out and started making investments and building companies, and the rest is history. You had this line in the book that NEA and Kleiner Perkins could not be more different firms. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, there was a story about J.P. Morgan, the great J.P. Morgan who created the investment bank and the Morgan Bank and all these other things, who created all the railroad. And he was with a young partner, and he was going through the New York Yacht Club. And the young, uh, he would, Morgan goes, and this is my partner's so-and-so yacht, and this is my partner's so-and-so yacht, and this is my partner's so-and-so yacht. The young guy said, well, where are the customers' yachts? For NEA, uh, we had uh, the most important people were our entrepreneurs and our limited partners. 
and they came first. And the whole firm was designed around being entrepreneur-friendly and giving the limited partners the best deal in the, the industry. So our fees were about a third of what the rest of the industries were, but we had a higher carried interest. Well, carried interest is not what deteriorates limited partner rate of returns. That is 70% determined by the fees. I don't want to go into the math of that. It's really very simple. And then but whether you return capital before you pay it all back. And so NEA basically build a business that would have entrepreneurs come back three and four times to start companies. And the partners of limited, of NEA one, I think, uh, contributed about a billion and a half dollars to uh, NEA 10, which was a $2 billion fund. They just stayed with us. We were fortunate enough to get some of the guys who pioneered the uh, fund-to-funds business. And as they grew, we grew, like Bon French of Adam Street and Ray Held of Abbott Capital uh, and a whole group of that, the Hancock people. And we, were, uh, we, we developed an extremely loyal limited partner group and an extremely loyal group of entrepreneurs. Now, Kleiner Perkins had a loyal group of entrepreneurs, I wouldn't say as loyal as ours, but they basically charged uh, high carried interest and high fees. I don't think, well, I'm not going to say it, but I leave it to your imagination. I don't think they treated their limited partners as well as we did. In the end, I think we treated our entrepreneurs better. So I, I would call them more like, uh, I'd characterize Kleiner Perkins in the days as uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you sharing this. So it seems like for NEA, you know, since you had a greater priority when it came to the actual carried interest, meaning you actually, you needed to generate a return in order to make money as GPs, right? Oh, yeah. They, you have to understand that venture capitalists aren't paid a salary. Now, we get a salary. That's called a loan. And we got to pay that back with interest. So at the end of the day, if our investors don't make money, we don't make money. Matter of fact, we could lose money. It took an NEA partner about 10 years. With me, it took like 12 years before I started taking money out of the business as opposed to putting the money in. Now, because you have to put up 1% of the capital for each partnership you start. And since you're doing early stage investing, it can take eight to 10 years to achieve liquidity. So you just do the math on that. And, it, you know, that became a good thing in recruiting because the people we, who wanted to make a fast buck didn't want to come with NEA. You had to have people who, uh, let me read you a quote from Jim Schwartz, who I admire, and a quote from Dick Kramlich, which captured to me the essence of the venture capital business. This is Jim Schwartz, who started Axel, who wrote the introduction to my book. You know, it's interesting to have a, quote, competitor. We didn't consider other venture capitalists competitors because they were our brothers in arms when we went on boards together. Venture capital has always been about helping a person or a project succeed. It is about adding judgment, perspective, and selfless desire to see a company succeed. Venture capital is best practice as a calling, not as a job. It was never about maximizing wealth. 
venture capital must be practiced with absolute integrity and ethics. That's Jim Schwartz. My partner, Dick Kramlich, said venture capitalism is about having the courage to put your trust in others and the conviction to do the right thing, even when it's hard. I really, really appreciate that. And also, I mean, those are two, you know, incredible quotes. And I think it also underlines as well, because I know one of the reasons why you wrote Dare to Serve the Universe, your, your latest book, is because you wanted to distinguish how venture capital was different to private equity and also hedge funds, right? Absolutely. You know, hedge funds uh, started in the 40s and uh, 50s and much as the uh, Charlie Dyson started the leverage buyout business. Venture capital has been around for a long, long time. I mean, the Phoenicians, when they sent out voyages, an investor syndicate would put up 80, the, all the capital and take 20, 80% of the profits. The people who ran the ship who went to England uh, took 20% of the profits which is the same structure the venture business uses today. And the investor syndicate would always send along someone with the crew to keep an eye on them like a board of director member to make sure they were doing the right things on the long voyages. So you can go back to Marco Polo and Christopher Columbus, and those were venture capital deals. The uh, whalers worked on an 80-20 basis with... uh, And the English merchant banks did it when they started railroads. Andrew Mellon, in 1880, at the Mellon Bank, gave $200,000 to salt Gulf oil, Carborundum, General Reinsurance, and Alcoa aluminum. No one has ever tracked. Lucius Ordway, in 1902, uh, was an angel, which is just a successful entrepreneur who is a venture capitalist. He's helped start 3M. Sherman Fairchild and other angels started IBM, a group of Rochester angels backed George Eastman to create the photography business in Eastman Kodak. Goes all through the early 1900s. Lawrence Rockefeller started in 38, Warburg, Pincus, and J.H. Whitney, 1938 and 1946. So the adventure business has been around for a long time. Now, egotists like Arthur Rock uh, who is one of the greatest venture capitalists and my partner, Dick's former partner, thought venture capital began in California in 1970. But that's because Californians never read history about anything except California. <laughs> I really appreciate you you telling us a story about venture capital. I loved as well how you outlined it in your book. So, I mean, with this being said, that how venture capital is different in a lot older industry than you know other parts of finance, whether it's private equity, LBOs, um, you know, hedge funds. How should venture capital, like thinking about it from the government's perspective, how should it be regulated versus how other forms of finance are regulated? Well, first thing is, if you treat capital gains as ordinary income, that destroys the whole economic premise of the venture capital business. Now, hedge funds, the average holding period is for a program trader, 16 seconds. The average holding period for a, a LBO fund is probably three years, the long holding being three years. NEA, we'd often hold things 10 years before we achieve liquidity. Now, we could achieve liquidity right dur- fast or much faster during the bubble, but it, uh, our whole business 
since you were not paid salaries depends on the long-term capital gains. And in that, we're allied with our two principal partners, the entrepreneurs and the limited partners, both of which have a sole focus of creating great companies that create capital gains. If you put the incentive to take the largest fee you can out of the pool of capital, you totally change the way the venture business works. So I hope some fool politician, and I won't comment about who I think are fools, because I think most of them are, but particularly the guy who's running the show right now, want to tax uh, carried interest as ordinary income, but they don't realize what that would do to the engine, what they call the American economy, which when I forget which communist Chinese premier came over to the United States and said that, you know, over-the-counter exchange and venture capital is America's secret weapon and its greatest strength. Don't mess with what works well. I really appreciate your thoughts on this. I really do, especially how what a VC's role is too, in that you're actually, you know, with the company for a long time, you're part of the building part, obviously not the CEO, but you're you're very much involved in the company, unlike, you know, a hedge fund uh, per se, which as you say, like it's really trading, not investing in, in, in some ways, right? I went to talk with one of the most successful hedge funds And basically, they were a group of statisticians out of MIT who developed models for how to go short and long companies based on mathematical formulas and trade them. That isn't what venture capital is about. No, for sure. Speaking of all this, I mean, how do you think when you meet with a young company and you get involved with a young company, and maybe it's a first-time CEO, what piece of advice do you have for the CEO when it comes to board construction? My first and foremost advice to an uh, entrepreneur and someone getting married is the most important thing you pick in life are the partners which you choose. Either your wife or the people you choose to do your business with, including the venture capitalist. And by the way, I've seen venture capitalists mess more companies up than CEOs because they get into a greed war when a company goes through a multiple round of financings and end up doing crazy things. So I had, I had a rule that I'd only deal with people that I knew and had worked with for a long, long time. So I had about five or six partners of choice, and if I didn't get one of those partners to go along with me, it would be unlikely that I'd fund a company. That makes a ton of sense. I can imagine that given at least, I mean, this year's a bit different, but in the last you know few years where deals are happening so fast, right, that it can be hard to build that trust with an investor or, or with a founder to really know if they are are a great partner just because some of these deals and some people are able to fundraise, you know, quite quickly. That is a great point. Well, let let me make a comment on that, um, which is venture capital is like war. It's the closest thing to combat that exists in the business world. And I tell you, in war and venture capital, you build partnerships and confidence each other quickly when the shooting starts. That makes a lot of sense, building trust very, very quickly uh, that you have to do, just like you do. Yeah. When you're fighting for survival. Exactly. What do you think are some of the biggest changes and shifts with venture capital since you got started? Well, of course, venture capital business, T. Rowe Price used to say the investor's only uncertainty certainty is change. 
the venture capital business changes every day with the technologies, with the type of the people that are being financed. Because, you know, Amazon uh, was started by a group of young guys and Google and Twitter. IBM, uh, Sherman Fairchild recruited Tom Watson to build that company. And Tom Watson came from National Cash Register. So, you know, you went from, at least in the technology space, particularly the consumer technology space, from proving, from backing proven business people to financing a lot of visionary pioneers. The type of businesses change. You know, when my father started in the business, you financed aerospace companies. Then, of course, you started computer companies. And that was unheard of because when I was uh, in the 60s and 70s, Big Blue was God and no one could compete with Big Blue, which was IBM. But then you had a little company called Digital Equipment Corp and uh, another one out on the West Coast It started the mini computer business. Arthur uh, financed that West, West Coast company, Arthur Rock. And then you had Apple come along. And who would have thought, you know, first of all, most conservative businessmen would have scratched their head and said, why would you ever name a company after a fruit? An apple, of all things. I happen to live off apples because I have to have an apple every day. So let me tell you a little story about Apple. So we were getting started, and um, there was this English guy, Anthony Montague, and he was the second son of Lord Montague. Very fancy, proper Englishman, except as the second son you get a pair of shotguns, and your brother, the first oldest son, gets everything. Every single thing. Just a pair of shotguns. Now, they're nice shotguns, but... So Anthony had to make money, ran his uh, a merchant bank, and then sold it, his family's firm. And then he started a venture capital firm. And we were fortunate enough that we got to know Anthony, and he became a close friend of NEA along with his partners. And Dick introduced him years ago, before NEOA was formed, to this little company out in the Silicon Valley. So Anthony goes out there, and you imagine this guy, he would dress in a wool suit in the summer, and he always had a coat and tie, English accent, very proper, but he was a wild hare because he liked to drive a Cadillac in London streets, and he loved uh, electric carving knives. He was really a character. He also... Uh, uh, it was the first guy to back Andrew Lloyd Webber, so he had a lot of interest as well as being a major art collector of art. Lucian Freud, anyway, so Anthony goes into this company, sits down, and Andy made his mind up quickly. About uh, 20 minutes into the meeting, he said, I will not leave this company, and he pounds the table very hard, scares these two little techno freaks across the table from him, and says, I will not leave this company until you let me invest. So they got him a Reuben sandwich for dinner that night. And I don't know what they got him the next night, maybe a tuna fish sandwich. They tried to give him the worst food to drive him away they could. But when, he, when they arrived in the morning, which was around 6 a.m., there was Anthony opening up the door to let him in. And when they left at night, he'd lock the door behind him. So uh, at last... Uh, on the fourth day, one of the, the co-founder of the company said, okay, Anthony, I've never had a house in my life. Anthony bought 4% of Apple for $400,000. Oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. 
he proved to mommy and daddy that he had more than a pair of shotguns. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, he definitely, definitely did. By the way, when my son started his business, he did it with Anthony Montague's son. Ashton started his own venture business. So you can say my family got in the business in 1945 and we're still going strong today. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Chuck, I mean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been so terrific uh, chatting with you. Um, If you haven't picked it up, listeners, I highly recommend you do Dare Disturb the Universe. It's a fantastic read, not just because I'm on with you. I I really did enjoy reading it. And uh, Chuck, thanks again so much for your time. Well, it's an honor to be in the program and get a chance to tell people about venture capital. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Chuck Newhall. I hope you all enjoyed that one. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 